What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Austin. Welcome back, man. Yeah, how's it going? You're still here, which is good. (laughs) And uh, I'd just like to say, like, all the amazing comments that we've been getting from from you guys out there on Austin has been... I'm really pissed off about it, actually. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Can you guys trash me a little more? Yeah. I'm trying to get rid of him, but... (laughs) No, it's funny because some people are like, oh, Josh looks like he doesn't want Austin to be there. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I've been having so much more fun since you've joined the show. Yeah. Um, compared to doing this by myself, like sitting in here by myself talking about these nightmares basically is has been fun, but also very difficult at the same time. Because there's so many things I want to say, but like, I can't draw it out of myself and you are able to draw out a lot of things and vice versa, which is just makes it much more interesting for me to, uh, to record and, and do the show as opposed to doing it by myself. So I am very happy that you're here. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. So the show's definitely gotten better. And I, I think many of you out there would agree with that. Also, I wanted to, I know I mentioned him briefly last episode, but if you didn't see it, we also have a third individual that works on the show now and this is daniel hey everybody so daniel is the producer and editor for lights out um he he basically kind of took over uh when joel left the show and he does all of the production behind the scenes so the the amazing quality that that we have um that you're watching whether it's on spotify or youtube is all thanks to daniel and i'll probably have daniel chime in from time to time especially towards the end of the episodes we're kind of talking about like what our thoughts are and you know it's always interesting to get different perspectives because i think we all sort of have you know different obviously have different experiences with these different topics especially the paranormal i mean it's so subjective and you know everybody's kind of got their own you know belief around it and you know skepticism around it so uh, that'll be interesting to kind of get his his thoughts on this one because today we're going to be diving into another one from the warren files which whew, it's been a while since we've done a Warren Files and you know these are some of my favorite episodes and I think for many of you it's uh it's the same and so today we are diving into a haunting of the Moffat family and if all of this is true if this story is true they encountered potentially one of the most dangerous entities demons that you could possibly even imagine encountering and, and interacting with. And it, it's very interesting because the, the sort of the story is called a deadly haunting or um, Mr. Entity. Um, and we'll, we'll explain more on what that is later. But this one is definitely a terrifying one if it, if it is indeed real, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's a ton of details on it too, which is, makes it even more fun. So the Warrens get involved in this one uh, later on in the story. And they don't have a huge part in it, um, and you'll see why, but they definitely, you know, were, were called to the scene to hopefully try to figure out what was going on. But when it comes to the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine Warren, everybody's got their own opinions on them. Some people think that they're total kooks and, you know, they were hoaxers and they never really did anything. And, you know, there's no truth to any of their investigations, but I, I tend to lean the opposite way of that. I do believe that they were legitimate uh, and very important to the field of of paranormal. Um, you know, when talking about Lorraine, she was a clairvoyant and uh, psychic, and Ed was a demonologist, so he knew he had 
huge uh, wealth of knowledge when it comes to you know the spirit world and and demonic entities and things like that so and in this one i mean his his expertise definitely i think came into play when yeah. trying to identify what this entity was that was haunting the moffat family uh so yeah this one's uh it's got quite a bit of, of action going on with it so i'm excited to dive into it uh, but this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Carov and Hell Fresh. Obviously, we still have got some merch items out there at milehighmerch.com. Go check it out. Uh, those designs are limited, and as soon as we sell out, we will not be restocking because we're going to be doing limited drops from here on out, and we are very, very excited for the next collection, which I'll be announcing hopefully here uh, by, hopefully, I'm thinking end of February. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, we'll announce what this collection is and give you guys a glimpse, a preview I'm very excited about it. But yeah, we've got the the white sage burning. We've got Annabelle sitting in on this one. Uh, Welcome back, Annabelle. It's very appropriate. She's here for the Warren files. I mean, she's been living most of her life in the Warren's garage, I think. So <laughs> it was nice of them to let us borrow her for, for the episode. But we have to return her because, you know, we can't let her wreak havoc out there in the world. So <laughs> got to make sure we get her back to her, her safe little uh box there and we keep this studio locked when we leave we do we have to lock it i mean the rest of the the crew here at malhar media does not want her getting out and most people don't even come in this room other than us because there's definitely a different vibe going on in here for sure the air is a little bit heavier you know you've got uh we've got valak sitting over here uh the nun demon if you're not familiar from the conjuring universe which i'm just such a huge fan of the conjuring universe i think they're some of the best Horror movies, I guess, are more of like paranormal movies out there. I still think of that first one when the yeah. the bed sheet is over and the blood comes out from underneath and soaks the bed sheet. That that still like gives me the heebie-jeebies. I think the Conjuring, the first Conjuring, is still by far the, the the most frightening one and just the best one overall. Yeah. Um, the Conjuring Four is in production, I believe. Oh, nice. And I'm trying to. I don't know if they've announced what you know what case they're actually covering, but I'm glad they're continuing the series. I mean, it's been such a success that how can you not continue for sure these movies? But yeah, it'll be interesting to see which which one uh, that ends up being case wise. But without wasting any more time, because we've got a lot of ground to cover, let's go ahead and dive into the haunting of the Moffat family. We'd go down to the house, and the furniture in one room would be put in another room the furniture would be exchanged one weekend he just backed and left he was gone you look for a rational explanation the day that they did that everything stopped until the dog died and then everything started right back up we had ed and lorraine warren come she told me this is one of the uh, very ancient powerful and evil entities i've ever contacted she said this is a demon and that was the focus of this whole whole haunting was lee he wanted lee he wanted her dead i had a new child I was starting to fear for their, everyone's life. It was booby trap knives, like, you're not going to touch my child, you're not going to touch my husband, and you're not going to touch my mother-in-law. In the 1980s, the Moffat family lived a simple life in Southern California, but their lives completely changed when they came face-to-face -face with a demonic presence that took shelter in their home for nearly seven years. By the time its reign of terror was over, the rest of the family made a pact to never speak about it again, hoping it would stay gone for good. But after nearly 30 years, 
a family member has opened up about the traumatic experience the family endured. It all began in a quiet home on Archibald Avenue in Rancho Cucamonga, about 40 miles outside of downtown LA. Deborah Moffat had met her husband, Bill Jr., through exchanging letters in the early 80s. For fun, they also sent each other videotapes of different TV shows through the mail. Deborah would tape professional wrestling shows that Bill couldn't get over on the West Coast, and they eventually began dating. After things got more serious, she moved to California and got married to Bill, before moving in with her in-laws. Three houses sat on the corner of Archibald Avenue. Bill's grandmother, Dominica, owned the house on the corner, and Bill's parents owned the one next to that, and Bill owned the next one over that he had inherited from his aunt when she passed away. But Bill lived with his parents because he had a heart condition and didn't want to live alone. So when Bill and Deborah got married, she moved in with her in-laws, Bill Sr. and Lena, in 1981. Deborah loved her in-laws, so she felt comfortable living there. Next door on the corner, her grandmother-in-law, Dominica, struggled with health issues. And in 1984, they hired a caretaker, Juanita from Guatemala, who came over to Dominica's house each day. Supposedly, the caretaker practiced Santeria and it was rumored that she had conducted some sort of ritual inside the house that opened up a door to the paranormal realm. The reason Juanita performed the Santeria ritual was that she desperately wanted to keep her job in the United States. She had a work visa, and as long as Dominica stayed alive, then she could stay in the U.S. as her caretaker. So she allegedly performed a ritual for Dominica in 1984, hoping the gods would give her good health. But unfortunately, Dominica ended up passing away some time later. The next morning after she passed, Bill Sr. and Lena, who also went by Lee, got a panicked phone call from Juanita next door. She screamed that she was being chased by something around the house. So Bill Jr. and his father headed over. When they approached the house, Juanita burst through the front door and began running toward the street. And that's when they saw a glowing white orb chasing after her but it eventually shot up into the sky and disappeared. Juanita then fled inside Bill Sr.'s house, and they tried desperately to calm her down. She apologized to the family and said she was only trying to help. A friend of Juanita later came by to pick her up. Before leaving, Juanita looked at Lee and told her, never go back into her mother's house, as there is only evil there. And from then on, Lee rarely ever visited the house. But soon, Bill hired a crew to clean out the home. And this is when the family discovered evidence of what Juanita had been doing in the home. They found candles, small knives, broken rosaries, and sacrificial animal remains tucked into the corners of the house. Lee was a devout Catholic, and she was convinced that these things were evidence of occult activity. So to understand Santeria a little more, because they were pretty quick to point fingers at Juanita, Santeria is an African diasporic religion that developed in Cuba in the late 19th century. And about a little over half the population of Cuba performs some form of Santeria. Um, it also goes by the name Regla de Ocha, Regla Lacumi, or just Lacumi. And it was first introduced to the Western world through the slave trade. They combined the beliefs, thoughts, and practices of Yoruba, Roman Catholicism, and Spiritism. Depending on where you are and who you're practicing with, the religion can take on many different shapes. Um, and these believers are known as creentes or believers. They're known to believe in many gods. And it started because 
many of the believers are also staunch Catholics, but they kind of practice Santeria in mix with Catholicism, and it's rooted in the history of the religion. Uh, many original believers were slaves, so they tried to hold on to these beliefs that they had by kind of disguising it themselves as like, we're practicing Christianity, even though we're not. So what they did was they took their gods and they basically said, no, we're just worshiping saints, even though we're actually worshiping our own gods. So it was a good way to hold on to their religion um, because at the time religion was a powerful device. So a lot of slave owners wanted to get rid of any slaves, original religions. Interesting. So that was kind of how this was all started. It's really like a fusion yep. of different religious, you know, texts and practices, it seems like. And it can be interpreted different ways depending on who you ask. And exactly. it's not like there's a official doctrine yep. for Santeria. There's no like Vatican for Santeria, right? It's okay. just, it's kind of like you could practice it one way in one town and go to the next town and it's kind of different practices, rituals. Which would make sense why they would find the rosaries yep. um, in the home. The knives, I wonder a little bit more about as well as the sac. But then the sacrificial animal remains. That doesn't necessarily mean something. You know, she was attempting to conjure something evil because, I mean, sacrificial animal uh, or sacrificing animals has been a thing since the beginning of time. Right. When it comes to pretty much any religion, I feel like there's always been some form of sacrifice. Yeah, and uh, her, her intentions were good because basically she was trying to, is the same as like praying or performing a ritual to, for someone's good health. So I think that's what her intentions were. But yeah, during these ceremonies, it's often involves music and rhythms and um, some small sects of Santeria. They think that if they can play this certain rhythm just right, gods can actually descend down into earth and possess you. Um, not in a bad way, but in a good way. Um, and it's kind of celebrated along with these rituals. Sometimes animal sacrifices do occur, um, but it's meant to be, try and be positive. It's right. not meant to be to right. like conjure something even evil. But if to somebody who let's say is Christian and they were looking at this and this practice, they would probably consider it witchcraft. Right. That's um, what Lee's doing here. She's pretty devout Christian. Right. So, so, like, so looking at that, you would think that even though Juanita's intentions were that she was trying to help or do something good, in fact, she may, you know, to somebody, you know, to a Christian, they would be do actually doing something, opening themselves up to something evil to come in and possess them. And, and that's the big controversy in this one is like, where did this entity come from? Was it summoned by Juanita? As far as we know, it doesn't seem like that was the intention ever to conjure something evil to unleash on the family in any way, shape, or form. But through this practice, is it possible that it opened up a portal, a gateway for something to come through that, you know, that was never the intention? Right. Something inadvertent happened. Yeah. Or, so, or like, you know, you were saying earlier to me, it's some, it backfired. Yeah. You know, in fact, she was trying to do one thing, but then the result ended up being something negative or negative entities may display themselves as something positive initially. Yeah. And you know, the more power you lend to it, the more, you know, it, it draws itself in and manifests itself. And so it, it kind of seems like that could have been what happened here. And again, Lee and you know, the Moffat family, they believe that 
this haunting started though with Juanita. Yep. But again, we don't know, and there's obviously no way to know for sure where this thing came from, whether it was Juanita or someone else, or it was just always there. And perhaps they somehow provoked it and it started gaining power. And again, it's interesting that we've got, you know, people in poor health here. Yep. And what you find in many haunting stories is that demons like to, or these negative entities like to, you know, they feed off of, of people who are, who have failing health and, you know, their mental health is failing at the same time. So an opportunity for them. One thing I've never really been good at is taking my vitamins, mainly because I had no idea what kind of vitamins and supplements I should actually be taking. But that is all until I discovered Care of. And Care of has actually been a sponsor of not only my podcast, uh, Lights Out, but as well as Mile Higher for years now. And so I've been using Care of Service for quite a long time. And I got to say, it's really changed how I've gone about taking vitamins and supplements because they really take the guesswork out of the equation, which is really nice. So it's really, really simple. You just go online to Carob's website. They have an online quiz that is really in depth and they ask you a number of different lifestyle and health goals and questions. And basically they give you personalized doctor backed recommendations on what supplements are best suited for you, which is really cool. And at the end of it, you can decide, you know, if I want to go with all the supplements, vitamins they suggest, or you can pick and choose what you want. So what's great is each day I just pull one of the packets and all of my vitamins for that day are in that packet. And it's really convenient when traveling because obviously you don't want to take six or seven bottles of vitamin supplements with you. So everything's in these neat little packets. You just pack how many you need and you're set to go. And what's cool is that each shipment comes with a customized pamphlet showing you exactly what is in your individual daily packs and why it was recommended specifically for you and your health goals. And it's set it and forget it. You don't have to like constantly keep track of when you need to order, you know, a refill and things like that. It just shows up at your door. So right now for 50% off your first care of order, just go to takecareof.com and enter code lightsout50. Again, for 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code lightsout50. So over the next few years, everything was calm. But by 1987, the energy on Archibald Avenue had shifted. They first noticed problems in the house that Bill had inherited from his aunt. This was the house next door to Bill's parents, and they had rented it out to a man named Danny, since none of them lived there. They rented out the house under one condition, that one of the rooms would be used to store Bill's sports collectibles. Over the years, he had collected baseball cards, jerseys, and other memorabilia that they kept locked away in the house's den. And every once in a while, the Moffats went over to the house to make sure all the memorabilia was still there. But one day, they unlocked the door and noticed that Bill's bobbleheads that he had kept on a shelf were now on the floor in the shape of a triangle with an S-shaped tail attached to one of the flat edges. At the time, they didn't think much of it. They figured Danny had gotten into the room and moved things around as a prank. And when they confronted Danny, he swore that he had never been inside the room and that he had never even touched the door to get into the room. They didn't believe him at first, but when more strange events began happening in the home, they began to believe Danny, that something else was going on. Like we mentioned, Lee was very religious. And in the middle house on Archibald Street, she had a small altar in the bedroom where she placed pictures of saints and religious statues. She and her husband would pray there every night before going to bed. One morning she woke up and noticed that articles of clothing had been placed in the hands of a statue of Jesus 
Over time, more random objects began to appear in her room, like an expensive watch and a wallet. They realized that these items belonged to the tenant, Danny, next door. But they couldn't understand why they appeared on the altar. The Moffat family would return these items to the house next door, but soon they'd appear back on the altar in the bedroom. They couldn't explain why Danny's belongings kept appearing there. They avoided telling Danny about it and simply returned his things to the rental house next door. And it soon became clear that whatever was happening, Lee and Danny seemed to be the focal points. And if she or Danny weren't the ones moving the objects, the family figured that the objects were somehow being teleported into her room, which these are known as the ports. So ports are objects that are transported from one location to another. From the French word, apportie, I think that's how it's pronounced. Sounds pretty French to me. <laughs> yeah, which basically means to bring. Uh, this phenomenon is only the appearance of an object sometimes, uh, and not the physical object itself, but other times it is the actual physical object. So almost like an apparition of the objects. Yep, exactly. And uh, many explain that this occurrence is called paranormal transference, which is the transfer of matter or energy from one point to another without actually moving it through the space between points. Um, since the, it got big in the 1800s, especially in the Victorian era, many mediums in physics claimed that they could basically conjure things out of thin air during seances. Uh, they usually did small objects like stones, flowers, or lemons. They've always been revealed to be frauds, at least as far as like a human doing this. Um, some even hid their objects in their vagina or anus wow. during the seances because wow. they really wanted to convince people and they knew that no one would be like, show me your butt to make sure that you're not hiding something in there. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, these it's never been proven that any human could do this under scientific conditions. In this case, this would be a paranormal entity doing this. Right, right. Rather than a human being, which I guess makes sense. Putting flowers up your butt. <laughs> and then they would just pull them out. And be like, yeah, oh, look, they're they'd here. Be like, oh, look. It just showed up. Hey, it's a little stained, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people believed it back in the day, too, to oh. some extent. But I'm sure sometimes they were like, what the hell? This is a. Was there a brown stain on this flower right <laughs> yeah, here? Yeah, right. Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's incredible that you pulled it out of thin air, but why does it smell so bad? <laughs> you know, I think that's why, you know, there's so much skepticism around the paranormal just because of, of the history of, of, you know, paranormal research and mediums and psychics. And even to this day, I mean, I know there's still tons and tons of frauds out there that use the paranormal to build a career off of it and charge people money for you know, these abilities that they have in actuality, there is no ability there and they're just, they're just scammers, they're just scammers yeah. basically, which, which is such a shame that, that people do that and take advantage of, you know, people who are, you know, really trying to seek answers through psychics and things like that. And in reality, they're just getting ripped off basically because there's not really a way to measure, right? There's not a way to measure psychic ability or even, you know, we have no way of even knowing where that even stems from. Yeah. So how do you know a fraud from the real deal? Right. After these objects kept moving between houses, Danny suddenly gave the family a one day notice and moved out the next. After this object stopped appearing on the altar, the family couldn't explain what had been happening, 
but they were all glad that it was finally over. With Danny out of Bill Jr.'s house, they decided to head over and clean it up so they could rent it out to the new tenant. They knew Danny had kept the place clean, so they didn't expect much work. But when they entered the property, they found strange markings on the light switches in the living room. Bizarre shapes had been written on the switches in crayon. Danny might have had some quirks about him that the Moffats didn't know about. And as Deborah inspected the rest of the living room, she noticed a high shelf on one of the walls lined with small statues of dogs. When she turned to look the other way and then turned back to face the shelf, she noticed that all of the dogs had turned around facing the wall. She called out to Bill Jr., but when he got to the living room, he didn't believe her. So Deborah let it go. But she was confident in what she saw. The next day, they went over to the house to keep cleaning. When they got inside, one of the bedroom lamps was found on the living room floor. All the doors and windows were locked, and nothing else had been moved. Even though Bill Jr. had dismissed Deborah the day before, now he couldn't deny that something strange was going on in the house. Even if someone had broken in, why would they only move a lamp? Deborah then decided to test whatever presence she thought might have been in the house. She went into the kitchen and began asking things to be moved around, but nothing happened. But when she walked into the dining room, she noticed that the dining table had actually shifted across the floor. She tried to ask whatever was there to move something again. She pointed at a framed photograph on top of the fireplace mantle and asked for it to be moved. But again, nothing happened. She began to think these shifting objects only moved when no one was looking. So both Deborah and Bill Jr. went back into the kitchen, waited a moment, and then returned. They noticed that the framed picture had indeed moved onto the dining room table. At that moment, Deborah and Bill were both struck with fear. But Deborah tried to hold herself together. As for Bill, he was on the verge of a panic attack. Plus, he struggled with a heart condition for the past several years. We mentioned this earlier, which is the reason why Bill had lived with his parents. He uh, had cardiomyopathy, which is a disease of the heart muscle. It struggles to pump blood through the body, and the condition can lead to heart failure. So it was um, intense strain like this, like having a panic attack, intense fear could potentially threaten his life. Bill and Deborah then left the house and informed his parents about what had been going on inside of the rental house. Lee was terrified when she listened to their story, but Bill Sr. didn't seem to believe them. He was more concerned with cleaning out the place so that they could get a new tenant, and he always seemed to be concerned about money. Soon they found a couple named Tom and Michelle to move in next door. They let them know about the house and how it was potentially haunted, but the couple didn't seem to mind. For a while, everything was quiet. There were no problems with the tenants until a few months later, when one day, Deborah left the house and saw Michelle out in the front yard. She noticed that the side of her face was swollen and purple with bruises. When Deborah asked what had happened, Michelle whispered that Tom had changed ever since they moved into the house. They'd always gotten along, but now he was aggressive and prone to violence. Deborah told her she should get some help, but Michelle refused. She said that she could take care of herself. But then a week later, Michelle disappeared. Tom told the Moffats that she had just left and wasn't coming back. Apparently, Michelle had broken up with Tom and fled. Weeks later, Tom also left the house and no one saw the couple ever again. When they checked inside of the rental, it was pristine. Everything had been perfectly cleaned, except for one thing. One of the living room rugs was missing. But the Moffat family wasn't too concerned with the rug, so they just figured they had let it go. It was old anyway. 
A few days passed and a strange man came over to the rental house. He said he was looking for Tom. Deborah let him know the situation and told the strange man that they hadn't seen Tom since he left. The man then asked Deborah if she had heard about what happened to Michelle. Apparently, her body had been found in a landfill, wrapped in the Moffat's living room rug. The strange thing was that Bill Jr. constantly read the newspaper, and there wasn't any story about Michelle or a body found in a landfill. As far as he could tell, the strange man was lying. Deborah wanted to contact the police, but Lee refused. Supposedly, Bill Sr.'s father, Andre Kucha, had connections to the La Cosa Nostra families, which is another name for the Sicilian Mafia in Southern California. And Bill Sr. was always warned to never become involved with the police. So they never notified the police about the potential crime that may have occurred. Then the Moffats decided to sell all three properties on Archibald Avenue. Their plan was to move to the north end of town. After they decided to sell, Bill Sr. found one of the hall pictures turned backwards on the wall and a round of strange events started before the Moffats could move out. Things began moving around the house or went missing entirely. They went on until they purchased their new house toward the end of 1987. They began their move, and then on the last day, Deborah accompanied Lee to get a few last things from the old house. While they were in Lee's old bedroom packing up boxes, they heard what sounded like an explosion in the kitchen. They ran over and saw that the kitchen cupboards had been ripped off of the walls. There was splintered wood all over the floor. Back in the bedroom, they heard the piercing sound of shattering glass. When they rushed to the bedroom, they saw that the windows had been shattered from the inside out. This was the last paranormal event in their old home. By 1988, they had settled into their new house. Two weeks had passed and nothing out of the ordinary happened. The Moffat family thought that the paranormal events were finally behind them. But the peace was only temporary. Bill Sr. again found a family photo reversed on the mantle of their new home. Lee said she might have turned it around while she had been dusting, so the family hoped it was as simple as that. But they soon realized that whatever was in their homes on Archibald Avenue had followed them to their new one. And it was worse than before. They all heard terrifying distant screams in the middle of the night, or voices would whisper their names in the dark. Their home alarm systems would go off without any activity and they kept finding personal belongings turned backwards like pictures and statues dolls and books but the Moffat family knew these were just things that someone in the family could have been doing it wasn't until a few days later that something happened where no one could claim responsibility Lee discovered a message on the bathroom mirror written in soap and it said talk to me at first they thought one of the family members was just messing around playing a prank because clearly someone must have written it, but nobody confessed. Deborah then took a washcloth and wiped the mirror clean. She figured if something had written the message, it would write another one soon enough. They all huddled together on the edge of Lee and Bill Sr.'s bed waiting, and after two minutes, Deborah headed back into the bathroom. Fresh writing was scrawled across the mirror. The words said, no escape. As the days passed, the entity began communicating more and more. Many of the messages were warnings, but they were warnings that made it seem like the entity was there protecting the family. Messages like, bad wire in the attic, danger in room, or fire and death stay away. Some of these writings even referenced the name Nini, which is the nickname that Lee's late sister had given her. 
Lee believed the spirit of her sister was the one riding on the mirror. But then the family thought it might have been the entity trying to deceive them. Because the next message it wrote was the word fools. And the next day a new message filled the entire mirror and it said, I hate Lee. Bill Sr. yelled out to the entity and asked who it was. Later when they returned to the bathroom, the name Prince had been written on the mirror. Between the family members, nobody had any more doubts about the paranormal activity in the home. But from the beginning, Lee stopped Deborah and Bill Jr. from reaching out to professionals for help. Finally, after the entity had openly targeted Lee, she finally thought it was time to reach out. Since she was so religious, the first solution she could think of was her own faith. So she reached out to a local church to schedule a house blessing. When the priest arrived at their front door, he refused to go any further. The Moffat family could see in his eyes that he felt a disturbing presence in the house. After hesitating, he finally forced himself to take a few steps in the foyer and sprinkled around some holy water. He said a few words, but left as quickly as he could. And after this, the Moffats realized they were going to need more help than that. Lee was devastated after seeing how a man of the faith handled the situation. Before they could find someone else to help out, the paranormal messages intensified. The entity kept writing, I hate Lee, and Lee die. Several messages a day would show up on the bathroom mirror. And soon these threats weren't just messages. The family would find carpets torn to shreds. And then symbols began appearing on the house walls that looked like they were carved with a knife. The family also noticed that one of the strange markings kept appearing. It was a triangle with an S-shaped tail attached to the bottom side. Sometimes it appeared in baby powder on the floors, or other times it was scratched into the walls. But they didn't know what the symbol meant. They just figured that this was the entity's personal mark. Inverted pentagrams and crosses also filled small sections on the walls. The altar in Lee's bedroom was also defaced and her religious belongings were destroyed. She would find them scattered across the bedroom floor. The head and the left arm of her statue of Jesus would constantly snap off. Her pictures of saints would be found scattered across the floor, and Lee took this as an insult to God. She then planned on moving her things downstairs, but Bill Sr. refused to give up his bedroom. Tensions between Bill Sr. and Lee began to spark more than usual, and one night when they headed to bed, Bill Sr. and Lee discovered that their mattress had been torn to shreds, and they took this as a violent threat. So Bill Sr. and Lee moved downstairs into the master bedroom with Deborah and Bill Jr., now the second floor was completely abandoned. Every time one of the family members took the stairs up to the second floor, the air felt thick and nearly unbreathable. So the Moffats rarely went up there. They hoped that after leaving the second floor where most of the paranormal events happened, the entity would stop bothering them. But unfortunately, Lee was still the target. If these messages weren't wiped clean, they would extend beyond the mirror. Scratches and gouges would fill the walls. And then the entity began stealing Lee's belongings, like purses and jewelry and clothing. They all went missing. And when Lee would read her Bible for spiritual guidance, it would leave messages like God's fairy tale on the bathroom mirror. Around this time, Lee began speaking to Bill Jr. in a rare Italian dialect that only the two of them understood, hoping that the entity wouldn't be able to understand what they were talking about. But soon enough, the entity began writing messages in that same language. So things were not getting better by any stretch of the imagination. So Deborah and Bill Jr. started searching for experts on the paranormal. 
They even began reading books on the paranormal, searching for psychic conventions and visiting any potential places that might connect them with an expert. They were able to drum up a handful of different self-proclaimed paranormal experts, and they reached out to them and had as many of them visit their home as possible. Every time the entity would taunt the Moffat family before the visitors arrived, it would write messages on the walls about how powerless they would be when they arrived. After several visits from these self-proclaimed experts, none of them were able to identify what the presence was in the home. Eventually, they finally made some progress when a local team of psychics came to the house, and they claimed that the presence was an ancient, powerful entity. But that was the only bit of information they could provide. And ever since the investigators used the word entity, the Moffats could finally describe what was actually haunting them. But then the violence escalated. The entity began picking up and throwing random objects toward Lee, like shoes, food, and silverware. Most of the objects were harmless, but then the entity began throwing sharp knives. On one spring morning, Lee took her seat at the end of the kitchen table like she did most days, when she felt something sharp run along the inside of her thigh. As she screamed and got up from her chair, she saw that a metal knife had pierced through the underside of the chair and up through the cushion. The sharp blade stuck out right where Lee had been sitting. If she had sat an inch or two in a different direction, the knife would have torn right through her thigh. From then on, more knives began to appear in the house, and they were always in spots where Lee would often sit or lie down, like chairs, pillows, couches, or even her bed. One time, six kitchen knives mysteriously appeared in her bed. Another time, two knives were found on the staircase with blades piercing upwards through the carpet. She couldn't go anywhere without thoroughly inspecting the cushions or floors, and it began taking a real emotional toll on her because no part of the house was safe. And this all happened within a year of living at this new place. She slowly crept around her own house, carefully turning corners and turning on every light she could. She lived in constant fear, and this also affected her family. Deborah could hardly sleep at night, not because she lived in fear, but because she feared for her mother-in-law's life. Every tiny noise at night might have meant another attack was on the way. Meanwhile, Bill Jr. and Deborah kept looking for help. The entity found new ways to wear the family down. The constant fear began to affect everyone's mental health. And through 1988, the entity kept changing up its tactics. As each month passed, the entity brought a new batch of terror. It brought bitter aromas through the house or the smell of feces or rotten food. Strange noises echoed through the walls. And the Moffats constantly heard what sounded like footsteps on the second story floors. Knocking noises came from inside closets, pantries, and even within the walls. During one month, they noticed the population of birds had increased to an alarming amount. The amount of cawing became maddening, and the black birds would dive bomb into their bedroom windows, killing themselves on impact and leaving a streak of blood behind. They also noticed rats had infested their home. They ransacked their pantry and began to breed, and Deborah said that these weren't ordinary rats. When she would open the pantry door, the rats would sit on the shelves and look down at her. Instead of hiding, they would stand their ground. The family talked about moving, but they realized that whatever was haunting them had followed them to their new home. So if they moved, it would just follow them again. In an act of desperation, Deborah went to the bathroom mirror, as this was the place she believed she could communicate with the entity. She said, please don't let these rats enter the house. If you won't make them leave, then please don't let them go any further. By the next day, she didn't see any more rats, but the entity didn't stop. Its new tactic was to bring objects from places the family had been. 
It wanted the Moffats to realize that it had followed them wherever they went. It brought mementos back from Lake Tahoe after the family visited for the weekend. It even brought name tags of waitresses that had served them at dinner. Even when Deborah and Bill Jr. traveled to different towns to meet with potential paranormal experts, the entity went with them. The marking of the triangle with the S-shaped curve could be found on hotel walls or wherever they went, and they realized that they couldn't run away from this thing. As Deborah put it, they had only one option. It was to survive. As the months dragged on, the mental health of the Moffat family members deteriorated. Lee would spend her days at the kitchen table or curled up on the couch. Nowhere in the house could be trusted. Her fear of the entity kept her tense at all times and Deborah noticed that Lee always had bloodshot eyes that would scan the room back and forth. Together, the family collectively counted the minutes until sunrise because they knew the attacks ramped up in the dark. All four of them would huddle in the bedroom and wait for the morning, and sometimes they wouldn't sleep at all. Bill Jr.'s health also began to fail. He barely slept, and the constant fear affected his heart condition. He also rarely left the master bedroom by himself. For Deborah, her fear wasn't as intense and some days she wasn't afraid at all. But she was constantly stressed over her family's well-being. And Deborah realized that over the months, the entity never harmed her. She was never the victim. So she began to believe that the entity would never physically harm her. Lee also knows that whenever Deborah was around, the entity wouldn't harm her. As long as Lee stayed by her side, nothing ever happened. As for Bill Sr., he was only concerned about the entity when it meant his property was being damaged. Other than that, he was mostly distant and simply observing. But still, Deborah and Bill Jr. reached out for help. Toward the end of 1988, they found a woman named Red Wing that identified as a Native American shaman at a local psychic fair. When Deborah told the woman about her problems, Red Wing invited her to meet with her local elder. After the meeting, the elder gave Red Wing permission to help the Moffat family at their home. Just before leaving, the elder said a few words in a language Deborah didn't understand. Red Wing translated for the elder, saying, You are not who you think you are. She didn't understand exactly what he meant, but she would soon enough. A few days later, Red Wing came to their home with another fellow shaman named Fire Panther. They asked Deborah to come with them upstairs. The second floor air was hard to breathe and the rooms were pitch black. After they turned on the lights and looked around, Red Wing and Fire Panther began a ritual in the sitting room. They burned a bundle of sage and waved smoke through the second story with a large feather. Then they moved towards the attic and wafted the smoke up through the entryway. After a moment though, the smoke blew back out of the attic like something was rejecting it. There was no draft and the attic was insulated. Redwing then turned to Deborah and told her that they would have to confront the entity in its domain. So the three of them crawled into the attic. Once inside, they clicked on the light and Deborah braced herself near the doorway. Fire Panther then burned more sage and began chanting in a steady rhythm. Red Wing explained that they were trying to get the entity to reveal itself. Then the attic began to creak and Deborah noticed a roll of fiberglass insulation slowly sliding down the wall. The insulation contorted and shifted until the outline of a face began to reveal itself. Cheekbones and a chin could be seen in the insulation. A spiraling horn appeared where one of the ears would be, turning clockwise around the head. Deborah watched as the deep-set eyes began to take shape in the face. For several seconds, the insulation held the imprint of a face, but then it fell to the floor. All three of them returned to the sitting room in silence, as it took them a moment to digest what they had just witnessed. Red Wing then told Deborah that the entity was much stronger than they had expected. 
Red Wing and Fire Panther wouldn't be able to banish the Force from the Moffat family's home, but Fire Panther said he had successfully removed a paranormal manifestation from Bill Sr. and placed it in Bill's dog, named Jeff. As the only way for them to move the manifestation was to place it into something else. He had done the best that he could, but Bill Sr.'s dog passed away soon after. The family didn't know if it was a coincidence or if something paranormal had indeed killed the dog. The dog had become ill with, I'm going to try and pronounce this, it is lifingiectasia, an illness where vessels in the stomach become obstructed and the animal suffers from diarrhea, vomiting, weight loss, and sometimes death. So this was confirmed that the dog died from this? Yeah, and I couldn't find any information on how old the dog was, if it had been sick before this. Um so it might or have been, it had eaten something. Or, yeah, it might have. It might have been just a pure coincidence, but but that was the diagnosis from the vet was. Yep. the dog died from this. So was it something naturally occurring that caused this, or was there something it, paranormal that? Yeah, that's indeed the, manifested inside the dog and right. killed it. That's yeah, very, very interesting. This episode is also brought to you by one of my favorite sponsors, HelloFresh. Uh, HelloFresh sends me four different meals each week, which I go on their app, just pick out which meals I want. And they have like 30 meals to choose from each week. And there's different cuisines. You can get uh, gourmet options. You can swap proteins uh, for different recipes, which is great because there's times where my wife might want a veggie meal, but I'm like, ah, I got to have that protein with it. So I'll add chicken or beef. It's really customizable and you can set it all up on the app months and months ahead of time. So it's really set and forget. And the meals just show up pre-portioned in a box on your doorstep when you need it and everything comes in individual bags per meal so you just throw those into the fridge unload your proteins put those in the fridge or freezer as well when it's time to cook they've got a recipe card it's like usually six to eight steps and what's great is it just takes all the time that it would normally require to you know put homemade meals together by going to the grocery store planning out the recipes and it just saves you so much time plus money as well which is great so if you haven't tried HelloFresh, I highly recommend it. I love it, and I'm sure you will too. Go to HelloFresh.com slash LightsOut65 and use code LightsOut65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash LightsOut65 and use code LightsOut65 for 65% off plus free shipping. It's no wonder HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. But at the end of 1988, they found a paranormal researcher by the name of Gary Kent and he offered to stay at the home and observe the phenomena. And of course, they accepted his offer. On the very first day, Gary entered the bathroom and yelled, Show me what you can do. And within an hour, a book fell from the second story balcony and hit Gary on the head. From then on, Gary became the entity's new target, and it turned its focus away from Lee. It shredded his clothing and destroyed his belongings. It then wrote threats and revealed embarrassing information about Gary on the bathroom mirror. It even taunted Gary about his sex life and his penis size. Oh, that's rough. He also began sleeping in the guest room, where knives attacked him after only staying there a few nights. Within a few weeks, the entire guest room was thrown into disarray. One morning, while they all sat at the kitchen table together, Deborah heard a strange snipping noise like the sound of scissors. Soon, she noticed clumps of Gary's hair falling onto the table. He ran out the back door into the yard as his hair kept falling from his head and it wasn't long before Gary left the house. Clearly, Gary had failed to help the Moffats, but at least he took some of the focus away from Lee. And luckily, a new paranormal team was on the horizon. As Deborah had reached out to 
the legendary Ed and Lorraine Warren and told them about what the family had been experiencing. The Warrens had planned on coming to California on a different business matter, but they were willing to come and visit the house. When they arrived, Lorraine slowly walked through the house trying to collect any psychic impressions. By the end of her search, she said that a powerful ancient demon had made its way into their home. The Warrens then came back the next evening to perform the rite of provocation, which is a ritual to get the entity to show itself. It was similar to what Red Wing and Fire Panther performed. They all sat in the living room in a U-shape while Ed read a series of opening prayers. As he spoke, they all noticed a heavy presence enter the room. Later during the ceremony, Bill Sr. slumped forward, his spine curved, and he pulled his arms toward his chest. Something inside him had shifted. When he got to his feet, he growled like an animal and moved toward Ed, dragging one leg behind him like he was injured. As he approached, Ed pulled out a small glass vial that held a small shard of wood. He held it in front of himself for protection, shouting that the shard of wood was a section of the Holy Cross, and it protected him. At that moment, Bill Sr. snarled like an animal and showed his teeth. When he began to speak, the family noticed his voice had changed, and he told Ed that he would bite his hand off, chew it up, and spit it in his face. Neither of the men retreated. But after the standoff, Bill Sr. eventually crept back to his seat. The Warrens claimed that the entity had taken control of Bill Sr. for a brief amount of time. Later in the day, a surge of water mysteriously came from the second story. After inspection, there was no broken pipe or any explanation for the water. During the Warrens' visits, Ed explained that there was nothing personally they could do to make the entity leave. And Lorraine believed that the demon was attached to Lee, so moving wouldn't help. Since the Warrens had no church connections on the West Coast, they contacted a friend who put the Moffats in touch with a high Episcopal church. But normally, the Moffats went to St. Mary of the Angels in Los Angeles, which was an Anglo-Catholic church. And Bill Jr. and Deborah had just baptized their son, Jamie. On Saturday, Bill Sr. told the Warrens that he didn't approve of Episcopalian priests performing a religious rite at their house. And he warned Lee that the Catholic church would excommunicate her if they went through with it. Although the exorcist came to the house and rang the doorbell and knocked, he was not allowed inside. The Warrens attended their meeting in town and then went home the next day. They later called and Ed apologized for not being able to help the family. The next day, the family noticed that the entity had turned its attention back to Lee now that Gary and the Warrens had left. Lee had gone into the kitchen pantry by herself when Deborah and Bill Jr. heard a frantic pounding on the pantry door. When they ran into the kitchen, they noticed the pantry door was jammed. They eventually wrenched the door open and found Lee lying on the ground. Red rings covered her neck and she claimed that the entity had tried to strangle her. After this attack, Deborah realized that she had to do something. So she told the entity that it would no longer harm her family. Moments later, writing appeared on the bathroom wall. It said, I will not touch your child. I will not touch your husband. But Lee belongs to me. Her youngest son, Jamie, was safe and so was Bill Jr. But the presence wouldn't stop targeting Lee. Then it went on to talk about a rambling story of a French monastery in the 1600s, and it told the story of a group of monks performing a blood ritual. They'd actually captured a nun and planned to sacrifice her, but one of the monks betrayed the group before the nun could be sacrificed, and she was able to escape. The entity said that in a past life, Lee was the nun who escaped, but now the entity finally had her back in its clutches, and it was out for blood. So according to some, demons and blood interact with what's called channeling to produce very powerful demons. Channeling is essentially a way 
of communicating or transmitting information, and it's not limited by conventional notions of time and space. This is a theory. If someone's possessed, the demons begin to share with the host the pleasure that they receive from blood. So this combination of demons and blood are most powerful in sacrifices or activities that involve blood, like murder, suicide, torture, self-abuse, the abuse of animals or other people. An example is the practice of cutting. So the person cuts part of the body to relieve the tension or guilt in their life, or maybe because the demon actually desires the activity. So this act may have some psychological factors, but some believe there's a, there's a very small thin line between psychology and the demonic. It's believed that generational family bloodline demons are transmitted from one generation to another by blood similar to disease being inherited through the bloodline. So it can be passed down generation to generation. I wonder if that's potentially what happened in this case. Yeah. That if in fact, you know, obviously we don't know for sure, but if, you know, she was really the nun from the 1600s that the, the entity is referring to, is it, you know, has this entity been you know, trying to, you know, trying to accomplish its goal for hundreds and hundreds of years. And right. so this is why, you know, rather than Juanita being the one conjuring the demon, was this demon always attached to this family right. over time? So that's the idea, like possibly uh, Lee had some family lineage connected to this nun that had escaped way back into the 1600s. That's terrifying to think about. Yeah, right? Makes you want to look into your family's history. <laughs> yeah, for real. You know, if you're experiencing paranormal, and I feel like that's a great place to start. Like, look into your family's lineage and see what they were involved in. And yeah, you could yeah. have a generational demon haunting you. Right, and it's believed that if there is ever an invitation at any point in your family history, one, you might not even know about it, two, the demon will only stop haunting the bloodline if someone can recognize it and essentially try and cast it out. So Deborah believed that she had to defy the entity as much as she could. So instead of calling it Prince, like it had told them months ago, Deborah began calling it Mr. Entity. She believed this was a way to constantly disrespect the presence in their home. And this name would shift Deborah's relationship with the paranormal entity. She opened up a dialogue between them. Although the presence would never write messages in front of the family, they could turn their heads away from the mirror and then look back and see that Mr. Entity had written a new message in soap. Their early conversations were mostly just simple questions and answers, and the Entity answered every day. But it refused to answer Deborah's burning question, What are you? The Entity completely ignored her. After a few more simple back and forths, Deborah went into the bathroom and saw these words on the mirror, Lee will die in 10 days. The entity had always threatened Lee, but this was the first specific threat that they had come across. Deborah thought that the entity was bluffing, because if it could have killed Lee, wouldn't it have done it already? But on the final day of the countdown, the family knows that Lee suffered from shortness of breath early in the morning. They rushed her to the hospital where doctors diagnosed her with pneumonia and congestive heart failure. So pneumonia is an infection that inflames the air sacs in the lungs, and they could fill up with phlegm or pus. And uh, I, I think it's usually older people are more prone to getting this i know like in old folks homes it spreads around a lot i think and then there's like a different form of pneumonia walking pneumonia like i had walking pneumonia as a kid um briefly which was pretty i had to go to the uh hospital and get 
IV fluids and, and antibiotics, I think. Um, but it was pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. But I think walking, I'm no medical expert, but I believe walking pneumonia is a, either a milder form or it's a different form of pneumonia that um, isn't quite as serious as full on pneumonia. But yeah, I'm sure somebody out there in the medical field will correct me on that. But. Yeah. My mom's an ER doctor, so she'll, she'll give me a call her up. test. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> call her up. And then congestive heart failure is when the heart weakens. Uh, the blood begins to back up and forces liquid through the capillary walls and that fluid builds up in the feet, arms, and lungs and it can often lead to death if it's not treated. So it's good that they rushed her to the hospital. Which I know heart disease, it, it can run in families too. Yeah, because we know that Bill Jr. also suffers from right. heart problems. Right, so it's interesting that's likely a genetic condition that the family's experiencing, but it's very serious too. And also, I don't know, this is, this might just be me connecting dots here, but the fact that this entity wants a blood ritual and mm. both, both Bill Jr. and his mom have heart conditions. Yeah. Maybe just a coincidence, but. Right. And well, and just in general, entities are, you know, in many possession cases and haunting cases, the individuals are ill and sick and and potentially dying and so it's it feeds off of that um whether it's fear or just you know they're nearing death and it's kind of like the ultimate goal yeah so so lee's health deteriorated in the hospital and her heart weakened but after three weeks she actually rebounded and they transported her to a private room in the hospital and while there she constantly fell in and out of consciousness from her weakened heart Bill Sr. and Deborah alternated hospital visits to keep her company, and while Lee was in the hospital, the entity barely bothered the rest of them at home. Still left them small reminders like moving a knickknack or a picture, but it was mostly harmless, and there was only a few messages on the mirror each day, or none at all. As time passed, Lee recovered slowly. Eventually, she was well enough to come home. When Deborah and Lee were alone in the family room, Lee leaned over to whisper to Deborah. She said that while she was in the hospital, the entity actually come to visit her. Every time Lee had regained consciousness in the hospital room, she'd look up and see a small black stain on the ceiling. It would writhe across the room and seep down the wall toward the hospital bed. Once it crept up next to the bed, a pillar of shadow would extend from the black stain. It loomed near her bedside and a thin dark limb would emerge from its body. In the small distance between the dark limb and Lee, a bright mist formed. Its shape turned into the form of an old woman staring back at Lee. Looking closer, she saw that it was her late mother, Dominica. The pillar of shadow retreated into the ground and the black stain then disappeared. It seemed as if Dominica's bright form repelled the black creature, and Lee believed she would have died in that moment if her mother's spirit hadn't protected her. At first, Deborah had a hard time believing her mother-in-law's story, but after all the things they had experienced over the last few years, she felt that what she had seen was real. While Lee recovered at home, the doctors told the family her recovery would be a long process. She had to carry an oxygen tank and wear tubes in her nostrils. She'd often wake up in the night and Deborah would hear her gasping for air. And then she discovered that the oxygen tubes had been severed from the tank, and they were all quick to blame Mr. Entity. Over the months, they all took turns closely watching Lee and staying by her side. They believed they needed to constantly protect her from the Entity's grasp. One evening, Deborah asked Bill Sr. to watch over Lee in the family room. She took a moment to talk to Bill Jr. in the master bedroom when Lee burst through the doorway. 
She then collapsed on the floor in front of them. Heaving, she spoke through her deep breaths and told them she thought she was on the verge of a heart attack. Eventually, she calmed down and her breathing returned to normal. When Deborah went back to the living room, she noticed Bill Sr. wasn't there. He had gone into the garage. While alone, Lee had seen a black shadow hanging from the second-story balcony above her. She thought it might have been Bill Sr., but the shadow stretched itself over the railing and then floated down above Lee. Black tentacles extended from its body and just hovered just above Lee. The figure continued to inch closer, and Lee could see its gaping mouth and two lifeless eyes take shape. Lee was able to gather up enough strength to get up from the couch and run. The figure chased her for a moment and then vanished just before she burst into the master bedroom where Deborah and Bill Jr. were. This reminded me, both of these instances kind of reminded me of uh, sleep paralysis episodes. Mm, yeah. I've never personally had it before. I've had a few friends explain uh, their hallucinations and stuff during it. Um, I know it feels like you're in this limbo between REM sleep and being awake. And it's something called a, the atonia doesn't wear off. So your body wakes up, but your mind doesn't. Your mind still thinks it's sleeping, but you're actually physically awake. So the mental images from your dreams can continue, and that's why you hallucinate during sleep paralysis. There's a few different kinds of hallucinations. One is where you sense a dangerous presence in the room. The other feels like chest pressure. Sometimes they can mm -hmm. both be in the same dangerous presence and having chest pressure. Um, and then some have even had an out-of-body experience, which I know one of my friends have had. They've had it where seems like they're floating above their own body and looking down. Um, and then 90% of all hallucinations deal with fear. Uh, and it, a lot of people think it's because the patient can have insomnia, anxiety, suffer from PTSD. Um, all these things have been connected to sleep paralysis. They don't know exactly what the cause of it, of it is, but those three seem to be pretty big. So I don't know. I, I kind of thought that Lee might have been suffering from sleep paralysis because this sounds exactly like a hallucination yeah yeah it's it's a different manifestation than you know what they had seen previously and it'd be it'd be it, it does sound very much like a sleep paralysis demon like you know the a lot of people who experience sleep paralysis claim that it's, it is this like dark figure with limbs and stuff that's crawling on top of you and yep. you can't do anything you're frozen and yeah and yeah i mean it would make sense i mean she's been through this all these health issues and trauma from the paranormal activity in the house on top of that lack of sleep and so all this could just be combining to cause her to experience sleep paralysis that's terrifying honestly the sleep paralysis sounds way worse than the entity honestly <laughs> like my god yeah it's horrifying i'm lucky i've never experienced that before yeah, i've never experienced it either i've definitely had like lucid dreams before but i've never had sleep paralysis thank god i you know or i've had dreams where my body's not frozen but like there's no voice like you like go to scream and oh, nothing man. comes out yep i've had that before and or that, like when you're throwing punches and it just feels like you just can't do yeah anything. or you're or it's like your arms feel like noodles and you're yeah. like why in real life i'd be able to kick this guy's ass <laughs> yeah, but exactly. in my dream i can't do anything <laughs> yeah it's so weird i mean the brain is a it can really play some tricks on you that's for sure oh yeah so after the incident, Bill Sr. woke up screaming late in the night. Something cold and metal had passed along his leg, and when they turned on the lights, he revealed it was a large dagger with a long hilt. What was weird is that none of them recognized the dagger, but they all assumed that the entity was responsible. At this point, Deborah had had enough. 
She charged into the bathroom to communicate with the entity. But when she opened the door, she noticed messages had already been scrawled across the mirror. And it read, There must be a blood ritual. Take the spear and stab it into Lee's heart. The messages went on to explain how to carry out the rituals. There was a list of incantations and what to do with Lee's blood. As Deborah looked closer at the dagger, she realized it was actually a spearhead. This was what she was commanded to use in order to kill Lee, but of course Deborah refused. As she defied the entity, an explosion shook the house. She raced back to the master bedroom. Everyone was okay, but visibly shaken. Bill Sr. said it sounded like a bomb went off upstairs. When they inspected the second floor, it looked like all the windows had been blown from the inside out and the drapes had been torn from the walls. Soon after, Deborah took the spearhead to the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles. While there, two experts identified the spearhead and said it looked like a ritualistic tool from the Congo, but it looked brand new. It might have been used for magical ceremonies and rites. And when they asked the Moffats how they had gotten it, they told the experts that they wouldn't believe them and left it at that. In the summer of 1989, they found a woman named Dr. Evelyn Paglini from Chicago. She claimed she was an expert in parapsychology and a practitioner of magic. She had relocated to California and inspected the Moffat family home in person, and she gave them directions to inscribe symbols and messages on the bathroom mirror. Every shape they drew was crossed out by the entity, and they began writing threatening messages toward Evelyn. It also wrote, Fuck you. You lied to my family. The family wasn't sure what it meant by that, but Evelyn knew. It was later revealed that Evelyn had been a founding member of the Satanic Church of Nephilim Wright Group in Chicago. It was founded back in 1971. She was a co-founder. Unlike some Satanists, this group truly believed in the existence of Satan and that Satan was the epitome of God's creation. The church ended up splitting up in 1974 when it had around 500 members and Evelyn then founded a rival organization called the Satanic Church. So that's kind of what they pieced together when when it said, you lie to my family. Um, they think maybe because this demonic energy had some satanic ties. And so since she led this group, the entity is basically saying, uh, your church was bullshit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. So over the next month, Evelyn and the entity had a back and forth stalemate. Evelyn told the family she needed the upstairs bedroom to be completely cleared out. When she arrived the next day, she led the family upstairs, which was only lit by candlelight, and they all stood in the center of the room while Evelyn ran her hands over each family member to read their energies. She then left the house and told them she needed time to analyze the results. After a few days, she told Deborah that someone in her family was keeping the entity there, and they had given it permission to stay. Evelyn and Deborah performed a ritual of their own to try and identify who it was. Later that night, Bill Sr. developed a coughing fit that escalated into convulsions. After it was over, he acted fine, but he couldn't recall what had just happened to him. After their findings, Evelyn believed there was a demon in their home. And this demon was a prince. It was actually one of the seven princes of hell. So according to that belief, the seven princes of hell are the highest and most powerful of all demons, regardless of their origins. Um, And they each represent one of the seven deadly sins, which is lust, gluttony, pride, sloth, envy, greed, and wrath. Uh, The leader of the princes is Lucifer, the supreme ruler of hell. So that's why they think the entity had called itself prince. That's insane. 
I mean, consider that's all real for a moment. That is truly horrifying to find out that you have one of the most powerful demonic entities in existence in your home. Yeah. Which makes me question everything significantly because if that is the case, this would be the most horrifying, terrifying, evil haunting to ever have occurred in existence. Like if you look at everything that, you know, across all hauntings, like to have one of the seven princes of hell tormenting your family. I think if that were true, it's a tall order there. Yeah. Ed and Lorraine probably would have hung around for a little bit more. They probably would have seen a more urgency to, to get this thing out. Yeah. And, you know, you could always say, well, maybe they weren't able to, to exactly identify what the demon was. They knew it was powerful and they knew it was an ancient entity, but one of the prince, you know, seven princes of hell. Ooh. Yeah. This is coming from Evelyn. So, right, right. Exactly. So you take it for, for what it is, but she claimed that they couldn't be removed because Bill senior was the one keeping it tethered to the home. Deborah recalled that Ed Warren had also mentioned that Bill senior was a link to the entity as well. Evelyn then gave Deborah some advice saying that they should keep the upstairs clear and try to please the entity for as long as they could. It could make their life easier and it was the only way they could save Lee. But Lee refused. She was dedicated to her faith and didn't want to welcome a demon into their home. And she refused to believe that Bill Sr. would do that to his family. She said he had no reason to. Soon after, Evelyn left the home and never returned. Later, Lee began scheduling psychiatry sessions for Bill Sr. even though he didn't want to go. As she wasn't convinced he allowed a demon into their home, but she could tell that something had been off about him, and the entity continued its reign of terror on the house. One night, it filled Bill Sr. and Lee's mattress with several gallons of water. It would mysteriously fill from the bottom up. This began happening so often that they kept a second mattress on standby. They also began finding shredded pictures of Lee or knives sticking into frames that held pictures of her. Mysteriously, Lee's doctor's appointments would be canceled last minute, and when she would call to ask why, she said that someone called earlier and canceled it. Meanwhile, the entity kept demanding a blood ritual. This entire time, the family had kept in contact with Gary Kent, a paranormal researcher from the year before. He said that he needed a place to stay and he could try to help them again. While he stayed with them in the home, it was the same as last time. Gary became the focus of the entity instead of Lee, and when Deborah asked the entity why he was the target, it told her that Gary also had a past life in the 1600s, and he was the abbot of the monastery where they kidnapped the nun. In this past life, he stopped the blood ritual from happening. It got to the point where the entity said that it would gladly take Gary's blood for the ritual instead. After this threat came across, Gary said, I gotta get the hell out of here again. Yeah, one more time. He said, screw this. Yeah. And the Moffats were left alone with the entity once again. By late 1990, Deborah noticed that Bill Sr. had drastically changed over the months. He had become withdrawn and quiet, and he often hid in the bedroom and skipped family dinners. He also began to lose an alarming amount of weight. When Lee would go to bed, she would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night to Bill Sr. sitting upright at the edge of the bed, mumbling to himself. He would then turn to stare at her in the dark without saying a word. After a while, Lee forbid Bill Sr. from staying in the first floor master bedroom with them. Instead of taking the first floor guest bedroom, he headed back up to the second floor to sleep every night. A few nights later, everyone woke up to the sound of howling coming from the upstairs bedroom. Deborah ran upstairs to find Bill Sr., with his nose in the air, howling like a wolf. It also looked like he was still asleep, like 
He was in a deep dream, sleepwalking. When she shook him, he woke up in a daze and then immediately fell back to sleep. Mr. Entity later took credit for possessing Bill Sr. So Deborah found a self-proclaimed exorcist named Steve Blake at a local bookstore. He required samples of everyone's hair and photographs of themselves before he could conduct the ritual in the house. He wasn't going to exorcise Bill Sr. He planned on exorcising the house itself. After entering the home, they pretended that Steve was only another paranormal investigator, so Bill Sr. wouldn't be suspicious. Bill Sr. was upset with how much money they had been spending on paranormal experts, and Steve Blake was more expensive than most. The Moffats waited in the family room where Bill Sr. kept himself in the rocking chair. Then Steve and two of his friends entered the master bedroom. As they began the ritual, Bill Sr. sat patiently, not understanding what was going on. But once the prayers began, he froze in the rocking chair and began to seize up. Bill Jr. got up from his seat, ready to restrain his father if he got up from the chair. And from the bedroom, Steve chanted in an unfamiliar language, and Bill Sr. then tried to get up from the chair, but Bill Jr. pinned him down by his wrists. Bill Sr. then cocked his head back and let out a howl. A moment later, he slumped back into the chair, lifeless. When his eyes reopened, it looked like he had just woke up from a deep sleep. Deborah noticed that his eyes were blank white until his pupils rolled down from his eyelids. Steve then emerged from the bedroom after the chanting was over. He claimed he had exercised a presence from the room, but there was a much bigger presence throughout the rest of the house. This was a presence he couldn't remove. After he left, the Moffats thought that they had just hired an expensive phony, and nothing was exercised from the house at all. After a few days, it did seem like something had left, but as the days passed, Bill Sr.'s strange behavior returned. One afternoon, Deborah heard someone constantly going in and out of the bathroom. When she looked down the hall, she spotted Bill Sr. sneaking down the hall toward the kitchen. Deborah took a look inside the bathroom and saw smudges of soap across the mirror. It had just recently been wiped clean. Deborah asked the entity if Bill Sr. had been speaking with him, and the entity responded, saying, This little prick wants me to kill Lee. He cannot command me. Deborah could hardly believe it. As cold as Bill Sr. was, she couldn't understand why he wanted his wife dead. Plus, why would the entity call out Bill Sr. if they had the same goal? Deborah then secretly spoke to Lee and told her that Bill Sr. was conspiring against her. Lee told her that just the day before, she caught Bill Sr. rifling through her old bank statements upstairs. It turned out Lee had inherited a lot of wealth from her family, and she and her husband didn't share a joint bank account. Bill Sr. had no access to the account or the money, and everything became clear to Deborah. Bill Sr. would only get half the money in a divorce, but if Lee died, he would get almost everything. Deborah told Lee that as long as Bill Sr. was around, they would never get rid of the entity, but she refused to believe it. Instead, she got Bill to agree to see a psychiatric specialist for intensive care. And during one of the sessions, Bill Sr. brought up the entity and all it had done to his family. The doctor then thought he was having a psychotic episode, so they detained him for 40 hours for observation. On top of that, Bill Sr. agreed to a full two-week psychological evaluation. While he was there, the rest of the Moffats noticed that Mr. Entity's presence in the house had faded away. After the two weeks were up, Bill Sr. passed the evaluation. When they went to pick him up, Lee went into the hospital alone to get him as the rest of the family waited in the car. Moments later, they watched as she stormed back out of the building. Outraged, Lee said that Bill Sr. and the doctors cornered her in a room and claimed that she had fabricated Mr. Entity. The doctors begged for her to stay, saying that they only wanted to help her. Moments later, Bill came out of the building and got in the van with them. 
He told Lee that she was an embarrassment to the entire family. They both felt like they had betrayed each other, and when they got back to the house, Lee turned to Bill Sr. and told him he wouldn't step one foot in their house. She told him to then pack a suitcase and leave. Bill Sr. controlled his anger the best he could, and he packed up a few things and then left, but he promised them he would be back. So after two months passed without Bill Sr. in the house, the rest of the Moffats realized that Bill Sr. had been a constant negative presence in their lives, and they were relieved that he was gone. It felt like a weight had been lifted from the house, and the presence in their home faded more and more each day. As years passed, there wasn't much of a threat from the entity anymore, but they still reached out to more paranormal experts. Their life at home had turned into a coexistence with the entity. Most of the time, it only talked about Lee's life, her childhood, and random facts. The entity also returned to sending random objects into the home. Most were gifts like pendants, rocks, bells, and photographs of strangers. Deborah didn't know if these were genuine gifts or some sort of distraction, and she couldn't figure out what the entity wanted any longer. A few months later, Gary Kent returned to the house yet again. Again, he had no job, and he desperately needed a place to stay. So as always, they let him stay in the guest room. And just like before, the entity terrorized Gary. So there was one morning Gary ran out of the guest room with a shotgun in his hands. He told the Moffats that Mr. Entity had placed the gun under his pillow. This reminded the family that as long as the presence was in their house, they would never be safe. Gary then let the family know that he would be moving to England for a job. And he had also asked the Entity to come with him. That was very nice of him. Yeah. He thought he could somehow use the paranormal presence to turn his life around. When he went into the bathroom and formally asked the entity to come with him, there was no reply. And then Deborah asked the entity on his behalf. And then they got a reply. It said, I will not work with an inferior being. (laughs) (laughs) Gary just gets torn to shreds. Poor Gary. Doesn't want to work with an inferior being. I will defeat him if I must. No integrity, no homage, no homage. homage? I didn't know what that meant, but it's in there. No homage, no depth, no character, no substance, no word. I will not stop him in his pursuit. Really doesn't like Gary. No. It's a personal vendetta against him. for real. So the entity wouldn't leave, but it also seemed like its mission to kill Lee had also been put to rest. And by October 1992, the entity had been with them for six years. After surviving the worst of it, Deborah figured she would try one last time to try and get rid of Mr. Entity once and for all. She then approached the bathroom mirror and said, Dad's gone and he's not coming back. There's no one to keep you here. No one to feed you the hatred you crave. Time for you to leave, Mr. Entity. Its reply came back in small, compact letters on the mirror later in the day. Please let me stay here, it said. As Gary packed his things, the Entity stayed mostly quiet, and by his final night in the house, he had gotten no word from the bathroom mirror. Finally, it said, why won't you let me stay here? She asked why it wouldn't leave with Gary, and it called him an empty vessel. But eventually it caved, saying Gary needs me. And as Gary packed up the taxi and left, the Moffats hoped that Mr. Entity left with him. One last message was left in the bathroom. Goodbye, my family. And as the months passed, there was no more paranormal activity in the house. Bill Jr. and Leaf still lived with the trauma. They weren't ready to live on their own, so they stayed in the master bedroom together. Together, the three of them promised to never speak about Mr. Entity again. They feared that if they did, it would return. As for Bill Sr. and Lee, they divorced in 1994, and that was the last that they ever heard of him. Deborah kept in touch with Gary Kent for a while, and he said that the triangle with the S-shaped tail had been carved into the door of his new apartment. 
After a while, he said that the entity was no longer with him, and then he stopped all contact with Deborah. Lee later passed away in 2009, and Bill Jr. passed in 2012. Deborah is now the last one alive that witnessed these extraordinary events. Her daughter Jessica later found out about Mr. Entity, and Deborah eventually broke her promise about never speaking about him again. She finally felt it was safe enough to talk about it. So two books have been written about the experience. A Deadly Haunting by Joey Albrecht, and Unwelcomed, written by Deborah Moffat herself. Even though most of the terror has passed, Deborah's daughter Jessica has claimed she still feels the presence of something unnatural residing in their house. So there you have it. The Moffat family haunting. Yeah. Lot to unpack there. Lot to unpack. This was uh So where do we even start? Right. I don't even know. One. Let's start with Gary. What's up with Gary? <laughs> this guy This prince of hell <laughs> has it out for Gary. <laughs> It's like, fuck Gary. Poor guy. Very it, personal attacks against him. Yeah, and he's like, hey guys, I just need a place to stay. Can I check out the guest room? Fuck and you, then, yeah, your penis is small. Yeah, yeah, it's like totally destroying this guy. Oh, so obviously, boy. obviously by talking about the messages, it seems to me that Bill Sr. and Deborah may have been in cahoots on this one i agree i think there's some repressed uh trauma or there's some very passive aggressive shit going on between them and uh yeah it seems like a lot of anger to get out that they did just didn't know how and um that resulted in some weird stuff it's i mean as you can clearly tell the story starts out in a much more believable way yep. with it ending in the most ridiculous, unbelievable way possible. Yeah, the, it's like goodbye. My the family. prince of hell is like, all right, goodbye. My family. I'll see you later. It was great living with you. Yeah. doesn't make any sense from going like, I want to kill someone in your family to like, okay, I'll leave with Gary. Yeah. Cause Love I mean, guys, it's clear that. So let's, let's consider the scenario that bill senior was the entity, right? Yeah. And he was the one that was writing the messages because here here's here's my number one thing that was like setting off my skepticism meter we've got supposedly this ancient evil prince of hell we're talking a seriously evil demonic presence very powerful decides to write messages in soap that is at the sink okay interesting yeah versus could write it in any other way possible you could have cockroaches coming out of the walls you could have blood you know, why not blood? Why not just put blood? Something more shocking and scary. Yeah, it sounds why like take someone, the soap. It's like someone's walks into the bathroom. The first thing they see is oh, the soap right next to the sink. Right. And they start writing something. And when you look at the pictures of the writing, it doesn't look very demonic to me. No, <laughs> that's nice. It's like, like people writing it in cursive. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, would a demon from hell write in a beautiful cursive writing with soap? No. Probably not. Seem like they'd write something more, more along with, the lines of this, a, yeah. a metal script. Yeah, okay? exactly. Like something that is more, more. You have to try a little bit harder to dice, decipher it, and a little bit more scary. I mean, if this thing was really trying to accomplish a blood ritual, you would think you would have escalated it a little bit further than it than it did. Especially with it targeting Gary so hard, it kind of actually makes sense if you look at it through the lens of. 
Bill Sr. being pissed that someone's staying in his house for right. free. And so he's just like destroying Gary, getting all his like passive aggressive shit out on the bathroom wall, right? Or the bathroom right, mirror. Right. It's just like, oh my God. Yeah. And it's like they kind of, they, they had us. If you want to make a good entity story like this, like you said, they had us up until that end where it just didn't make sense. And it, it sounds it like it all falls you know, apart. Yeah. It sounds like too perfect of it's like a happy ending for everything and it doesn't really make sense. Which which makes you believe that was this a planned out thing from the very beginning? Was this story like co-written by Deborah and Bill? Yeah. And they infused real elements of their family. Obviously the illnesses and stuff I don't think are fake. I think a lot of the events that did happen were real. It's just were they caused by a paranormal entity or was it fucking bill going off the rails every right. night? Yeah, like exactly. scaring the family. Yeah, and dad's like, angry again. He's howling at the the ceiling and you know, like, <laughs> and that's, and that's the thing is like, there's a breakdown of consistency when talking about a demonic entity or, or a possession story. Like it just doesn't add up. Yeah. And I really highly question the warrants even being involved in this one because you looked yeah i i couldn't really find that much like they don't have it on any of their show you That's know they, the they didn't yeah. like talk about it at all usually you know they would keep little mementos of something or right, like whatever right. it seemed like they showed up they kind of realized that something wasn't right and then they were like we did as much as we could sorry and for all we know they could have just made up everything that ed and Lorraine said and yeah. who knows if, if they even ever came to the house I mean we have no proof of it and again this isn't like we don't have Ed and Lorraine talking about this case yeah anywhere ever. from I've what never, I've seen I could not find it and thinking about how okay so the family made a pact never to talk about it again right and then the only other witnesses so I don't know what happened to Bill senior couldn't find a trace of him honestly don't even know if he was like we don't even know if they existed yeah we have I, no I couldn't find proof. any trace of bill senior this could have been a concocted story by deborah completely. for real yep and then if if i mean they do have deborah's daughter talking about certain things so we know that lee was a real person we have actually photo evidence of her um and i think you can actually see bill jr in one of the pictures that they take of the mirrors so like those people did exist but then also the fact that Bill Jr. and uh, Lee had passed away, and then all of a sudden Deborah's like, "I want to break our pact of never talking about this again," and now I'm the only one who can tell this story. So it almost seems like it lines up too well for her to just take a lot of creative liberty. Yeah, I mean, and it seems like they pulled inspiration from a lot of places. Oh, like, definitely. The nun thing sounds a lot like. You know, Ed and Lorraine Warren's none. You know, so yeah, yeah. sounds like Valak over here. Yeah, you know? exactly. like the, his or or his or her origin story. So it seems like a very like creative, thought out, paranormal story that attempted to infuse these real elements to make you believe that it was real. And in whenever, obviously, whenever people write books or media about something you have to question like what's the motive right yeah is it to share our story as it as it happened or is it to potentially try to make money and you know maybe somebody will pick it up and make a movie out of it and you know is the family trying that that angle yeah and 
the fact that like they do have pictures, um, which are, you could kind of take them either way. I'm not sure, but it, there are like, you know, the pictures of the mattresses being torn up, the knives stabbed through the family portraits, which if that, if there is no haunting doing that, that's even still scary that someone in the family is just, like, right. just tearing yeah. up mattresses and throwing shit around and stabbing family portraits, you know? I mean, this, this case would be probably one of the biggest examples of extreme paranormal activity ever recorded. Like yeah. this would be insanity knives being thrown around like and that's the thing about these these hauntings and even possession cases is like we don't have anybody you know the the physical harm aspect is usually not there like it's not the entities are never strong enough to physically harm you yeah um you know nobody's ever died from a ghost before right, right. or a spirit before so a spiritual what was that attack. case we covered of i think it was a poltergeist where the guy would have um wounds right up here right. in his skin like there's that but that was really the only other one that we've covered i think that actually has some physical attacks because like the if you think about it the paranormal energy the manifestation that this thing would have to be able to do in order to cause all this stuff to happen in in the physical world would have to be like off the charts i mean we're talking yeah we're talking one of the princes of hell and so it's convenient right. that the entity that's you know haunting this family is the is the prince of hell yeah. but it's like what what motive does the prince i'm sure the prince of hell's got better things to do than get screw with this family screw with the moffat yeah, family right. you know what i mean so it's like that's where it just became so unbelievable to me is like you're talking a prince of hell really yeah. you know and, and it's like and just the way that it's talking to the family through the mirror i'm just like this does not sound at all like a demonic entity would sound like or communicate yeah and if there was a nugget of real paranormal activity it's now been lost in the creativity of the story totally like the exaggeration because maybe there was something real along the way oh, but yeah. now it's right. just been lost in in this whole narrative yeah. that they built around it well my thing is like out of everything that happened, we're talking years of this haunting going on. We've got multiple paranormal investigators coming in. All we have are these still photographs. Like nobody thought, wow, this is absolutely insane. Let's get the cameras out, the video right. camera out, and yeah. let's try to capture more evidence. This would be like a poster child case for all paranormal investigators. This would be like the number one example yeah, of real porno uh porn pornography <laughs> paranormal sorry get my mind out of the gutter um paranormal activity you know this would be like the case everybody goes to right yeah but, and and the fact that they all lived in the master bedroom at a certain point you know they were all crammed in there and a lot of the activity was in there yeah like you were saying you couldn't just pull up a video camera it's 1988 you well the, get the writing on the camera. mirror they said oh, that they yeah. would just turn around and writing would appear on the mirror. So why not throw a camera up there and to show us? It. Yeah. yeah. And that's and then and that's where it's just like it all breaks down. You know, they they were like, Oh, if we get a few photographs of this, people will believe us. Yeah, right. But it's like you can stage anything yeah. on a photograph. Like it's not that hard. You can manipulate photographs, you can do all sorts of things. So it's like it's so unbelievable. But I want to ask you, Daniel, what what are your thoughts on this? Um, I really think that for lack of a better word, it's kind of bullshit. Uh, I think that maybe I think those are the right words. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think that the like specifically in the story when you were mentioning that you know Deborah would leave the room 
and then something would happen. Or when um, Lee was with Deborah, nothing bad would ever happen. But when Deborah would leave, something would happen. That's kind of a tell right there. Yeah. I mean, quite a coincidence, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, there's a couple things that don't make a lot of sense to me, like Bill Sr. howling like a wolf and dragging his leg behind. But I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I did find it kind of interesting that the, uh, the, the sleep paralysis and how she was experiencing those vivid hallucinations. But I do think that was more along the lines of just months of stress building yeah, up. Totally. And yeah. being of, in the hospital exactly. for so long. Yeah. Well, and if you have this maniac in your house, that's doing all this <laughs> shit. Like, of course it's going to be, it's going to be stressful in your subconscious. And, right. Yeah, exactly. I feel like most of you out there are going to be like, Right, you're probably typing bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Like, because yeah, this one was again. It started off promising, and you know, it started coming together really well as like a typical haunting that we cover. But then it just things just get more and more extreme. I think as soon as you know, I I, I started hearing like Prince of Hell and you know Blood Ritual. It just sounded way too like convenient yeah, for and a fitting story. yeah for a story like it's yeah it makes a great it's a great story honestly like very entertaining very spooky and scary and you know throughout this episode i'm just like picturing all this in my head and i'm like holy shit that'd be absolutely horrifying i mean uh, the the scene of going into the attic like it, oh, like yeah, there's so many yeah. so many different like scenes within this this story that i'm like they pulled it from that movie, this movie, that movie. Yeah. And I'm like, they pulled all of like the scary moments from all the horror movies into one story. Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, we went into the attic and then, you know, we've got these shaman up there and we're, you know, we're calling forth this demon and then it's manifesting itself inside of the, the insulation and the yeah. face is formed. I'm like, Jesus, yeah. like <laughs> this would be scary ass movie. Yeah. Like, I really, I love the imagery that they were trying to blow the uh, sage smoke, I think up oh, into the yeah. attic and then it was it's like, like coming back. Like, out. Yeah. That's like, yeah. I was, was just, just seeing so like imagery. a cloud come out. Yeah. I was so, going to say like, if you made a movie out of this, out of this story, you could do a really like crazy rendition of it I'd for sure it. like i'd watch, I'd watch it. it for yeah. sure and and you know i think at the end of the day that's probably what they're trying to go for is like let's try and monetize this try to monetize this and hopefully get a movie deal i mean it's and and you can say that for a lot of different hunting stories that that's kind of the motivation and a lot of people think the Lor the warrens that was their motivation yeah, that's like, a big critique of the warrens i know they they maybe were doing paranormal investigations but then they're like oh if we embellish this and record it because again we haven't nobody's ever seen a lot of the evidence that the warrens claim that they've witnessed and things like that and yeah. you know they claim it's all locked away you know at their now museum but it's just i i think there's that they have a lot more credibility than a lot of just families that you know it's harder it'd be harder for the warrens to to hoax stuff and still kind of remain not popular in a way but also like called upon time and time again if they were faking everything yeah. as opposed to when individual families are like oh yeah this is this is my story there's no evidence whatsoever other than the photographs that we took to prove that anything ever happened in our house and we have no idea even if shaman came to their house we have no you know yeah, and just the, na no the names too i'm like oh yeah a little bit too fire panther <laughs> yeah, and red wing i'm right. like that sounds like something you pulled out of a. Yeah, it's like what the Detroit generate name generator. Yeah, <laughs> right. They also say like they specifically said it was like they were self-proclaimed 
Native American shamans, mm. maybe to cover their tracks or something like that. I'm not sure. And then they find the self-proclaimed exorcist at the bookstore. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Also, I don't, I don't think we covered that, but they tried to contact that bookstore guy that they found and it, there was no trace of him. Mm. They couldn't even like he might have been giving them a fake name and just conned them out of some money. Well, I, I don't even think Gary exists. Yeah. I think Gary's a completely <laughs> fictional character. I, I believe Gary exists. You believe Gary? I, I hope he's out there in England. He's in England, sipping tea, yeah. listening to the episode. Yeah, yeah, and has a shotgun underneath his pillow. <laughs> That's a, See, the, the manifestations just got increasingly more and more powerful, but yeah. less believable. Right. It's a like, shotgun? Come on. Never in history has a, has a ghost or a spirit or a demon been able to manifest a physical shotgun that oh, you could kill somebody incredible with. That'd be insanity. That. Yeah. Again, this would be the absolutely most insane demonic haunting of all time. It'd be something everybody would talk about. Oh, there'd be so much research into this and no, none of that exists. So. I'd like to think Gary's just a drifter and he's like, I need a place to stay. And then he got, like, sure, I don't know. Gary, he, come on in. He was, <laughs> and one morning he just like woke up frantic and grabbed his shotgun and ran out in the house and he had to explain himself. He's like in his underwear with a shotgun. He's like, I swear it was the entity. I swear. More like he's probably trying to keep himself from getting killed by Bill. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I got to protect myself keep from that thing Bill. Loaded. Yeah, yeah, locked and loaded. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, and then it's just, it's so convenient the way they wrap it up. Well, then Gary, you know, he sailed off into the sunset yeah, over the seven seas to England. That didn't track with me. If you're going to write a good narrative, that didn't even make sense because no. the entities like, screw this guy, hate this guy, small yeah. wiener. Like, and then all of a sudden he's like, all right, I'll pack up and ship out with him yeah. to a different country. And then, so long, my family, like they're friends in the end. Yeah. What? Doesn't Get the fuck out of here with that. Yeah. The prince of hell ain't your friend, man. Yeah, it's not if, here to befriend you. And if anything, the more convinced, you know, I don't really believe in the paranormal, but the more convincing stories are all the ones that have mystery left to them yeah. where things yeah. aren't really wrapped up and a lot of things aren't explained, which is how it is in real life. Yeah, like, exactly. Let's be honest, like, yeah. It's all unexplained. There's it, no identification right. happening. Yeah. <laughs> also, can I, I'm just thinking of this now, the prince thing, you know, where it's the what's her name? Evelyn Peglini comes from that church of Satan, but I can't remember the exact. Was that church real? Yeah, it was real. I actually found. And like, Evelyn I, was real? Yeah. As far as I could research it, oh, that wow. was real. Yeah. She co-founded this church uh, in Chicago. Yeah. Had, had up to like almost 500 members or something at, at one point. But I also loved that she comes in. She's like, this is one of the princes of hell. Also, you should just be friends with it keep it upstairs and hang out with it. She's trying to get some incentives for the family. To right. Keep it right. Around. I thought that was crazy. And the fact that this all, according to the Moffat starts with poor little Juanita. Oh yeah, I know. They pin it on Juanita. I know. Right. What? Come on. The Yeah. Like we were saying, it's the, just the caretaker that wanted to keep her job. And they're like, no, nah, it's her fault. She her brought fault. this in. She's conjuring prince of darkness into our house like, yeah come on man which i don't know in reality she's probably just like was actually legitimately trying well, yeah, to help just trying to like pray for the family like yeah. just a nice woman that yeah. they're like she's definitely doing some evil in there right yeah <laughs> so yeah there you have it at the end of the day do you think this really really happened were the events true or was there events inspired by lots of great horror tales I think it's hard to really like decide 
was there certain elements of this that were real or was this whole thing fabricated from the the jump like there none of this actually happened this was just all in deborah's head or maybe bill was in on it too or was it did some of this unfold and it was just like they were kind of pulling the strings right they were they were making the things happen in the house the soap on they clearly wrote the soap on the the mirrors and stuff like if they really did like hoax this with their family in the house that is some fucked up shit yeah that's crazy. like if you think yeah. about it like who does that yeah and you'd have to be organizing some serious theatrics for totally that, right totally tearing up the mattress what are they and exploding the in the second right, story yes, like what the blowing hell? up windows this and is shit? crazy come on yeah like if they were really doing that i feel bad for lee and anybody else that was in the house not in on it because that would have been terrifying yeah, imagine God, that poor you probably woman. wouldn't believe that this is really happening yeah either. right and no wonder, yeah, it's like there's like the poor old woman in the house who's highly religious, who you know she's kind of susceptible to believing that, I don't know, something spiritual might be going on. And yeah, it's Here kind of terrorizing her. I mean, yeah. So who knows? Who knows what the truth is with this one? But we want to know your thoughts on this. If you're watching on YouTube, let us know in the comments. Or if you're on Spotify or listening to this elsewhere, you can always let us know via social media at Lights Out Cast. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as well. But that is it for us today. That wraps up the Moffat family haunting and another episode of the Warren Files, which I don't even know if this one really belongs in the Warren Files no, because I don't think right. the Warrens even claim it. So I think yeah. I don't even know if I'm going to put it in the Warren Files because I feel like that's disrespectful to the rest of right, their right. actual cases that they, they have claimed. We'll so. call it a Warren's blooper reel. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But... Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lights Out Podcast. As always, make sure you're subscribed on YouTube, following us on Spotify. We will see you next week with another one. Until then, lights out. Ev.